Well, good evening, guys, and uh, Merry Christmas. It's exciting to, uh, to be jumping into this Christmas season together. It's starting to look a lot like Christmas around here, and it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, hopefully, in your neighborhoods and in your houses as we kind of prepare for Christmas uh, in 2016. So we're super excited about that. We're also really, really excited about the opportunity to begin a brand new series tonight, our, our Christmas series, that we are calling All is Calm. And so let me just say, uh, of course, if you're a guest with us, like Seth had mentioned previously, uh, we are so, so, so thankful that you're able to be with us tonight. We kind of an absolute honor that you would spend time with us, and uh, we really hope you feel welcome as you got a chance to kind of connect here. And really, we oftentimes say uh, that the beginning of a new series is the best opportunity to get connected at Grace Church, and so if you are a guest, you really came at an awesome time. And our hope would be that maybe as we kind of journey through this Christmas series together, uh, that maybe as you're investigating grace, you would want to lock in for the next uh, coming weeks as we get a chance to kind of process together just the true meaning of Christmas as we kind of have a chance to focus on that together uh, through this series. Now, as I mentioned before, again, as you've seen, our series that we're going to be beginning tonight is called All is Calm. Uh, That, of course, is a a lyric that we we took from a a very famous Christmas song. Uh, And but for some of you, when we talk about this idea of Christmas and we talk about this series about the meaning of Christmas and the title is All is Calm, I think for some of us, we might think that that title seems a little ironic, right? And, and I think the reason for that is because if I was to ask any of you, I think if I was just to sit down and ask you, hey, if you could summarize for me in one word uh, how you would describe Christmas at your house, Christmas with your household, with your family, just do it in one word. I think for, for most of us, if we're being real honest, uh, the word that we wouldn't use is probably calm, right? It might be one of the last words that we would use. I think for many of us, uh, we might use the word busy, uh, we might use the word uh, crazy, uh, depending on what your family is like. You might say dysfunctional, right? If I asked you to just kind of summarize Christmas in one word, uh, you might say expensive. And, and there could be a lot of ways. For, for some of us, it'd be fun, it'd be exciting, it'd be exhilarating. But I think for a lot of us, the, the last word that we probably use to describe the Christmas season uh, would be the word calm. Uh, for many of us, when we think about Christmas in our culture, uh, the images that come to our mind is Christmas shopping, We think about the hecticness of things like Black Friday. I think a lot of us think of bouncing around from parties to family uh, functions and and visiting this side and visiting that side of the family and trying to go over to aunt such and such's and getting the kids ready and going over here and just kind of the chaotic craziness that that kind of meets all of that. And so I think for many of us, if I was to ask you to describe the Christmas season in one word, calm would probably be the last word that you would think of. In fact, the better word might be chaotic. And I think a lot of us can kind of Uh, sympathize with that. It's interesting, it probably comes to no surprise to any of you that uh, psychologists uh, have have really kind of noted that during the holiday season, uh, even though we sing about how it's the most wonderful time of the year, we sing about peace and we sing about uh, how all is calm, a psychologist point out that oftentimes during the holidays, and specifically Christmas, that it usually is a peak kind of time of year for anxiety and for stress and for depression. And I think for some of us, that makes a lot of sense, right? There is a lot of anxiety that can come with this season. Uh, there's family anxiety. As I mentioned, for some of us, our, our families are a little dysfunctional. I think for all of us, our families are always a little dysfunctional. Uh, but but with there, there's anxiety that comes with that. The anxiety of, are we going to be able to make it to everyone's house and please them? Are we going to offend somebody this year? The anxiety of, is everyone going to get along this year? Is Uncle you know, Uncle Eddie going to show up in his RV again, park it in the drive? Oh, that was a movie. Never mind. Like, is that going to, you know, is, is everything going to be okay? There's family dysfunction. There could be um, family anxiety. For some of us, maybe there's family members that we haven't talked to in years. When the holidays come around, it, it kind of resurfaces some of that tension again. 
And there could be some anxiety that kind of comes with that. So there could be family anxiety. There could be financial anxiety. I think for a lot of families during this time of year, Christmas shopping and doing all those things, there can be a lot of concerns. Man, are we going to have enough? Are we going to have what we need to make ends meet? And, oh, we, we forgot to shop for this person, and we forgot about that person. And, oh, the cousins. Are we supposed to shop for the cousins? Are you supposed to? I don't even know. And there can just be a lot of anxiety financially as it relates to this season. Obviously, there's a lot of anxiety as it relates to loneliness that happens during this season. Maybe for you, maybe you're a person that this is the first Christmas that you're facing uh, with the loss of someone near and dear to you. I know that's true uh, in my family. Just these past couple of weeks, I lost my grandmother. And so now we're facing, man, what's Christmas going to be like without grandma? And, and, and just the there's some anxiety that kind of comes with that, right? For some of you, maybe it's the loss of a relationship. And maybe a recent divorce that you're going through or maybe a separation of some type or a breakup or whatever it might be. For some of us, Christmas can be one of those seasons where it's a reminder of what we once had but what we since lost. And, and so because of that and a myriad of other reasons that we could go on and on, sometimes this season is one that can be met with a lot of anxiety. It can be met with a lot of tension. And, and so here we are. We're less than a month away from Christmas, right? And, and we're in one of the most hectic times as a season with the shopping and the Christmas stuff and all those things. And psychologists would say this is one of the peak seasons of anxiety. And yet within all of this craziness that we experience during the holidays, if you listen to the songs that we sing, and the songs that we sing sing about Christmas, and we say things like you know, peace on earth, and we say things like all is calm, right? We say things like it's the most wonderful time of the year. And, and all of that begs a really important question then. The question is this. Is, is all of this, when Christians say, man, peace on earth, the true message of Christian is that the, the true message of Christmas is that all is calm and that there's joy, is this all just wishful thinking, right? Are Christians just departed from reality so much uh, that, that, that we have wanted to warm our hearts with sentimentality so much that we've numbed ourselves from the reality of the chaos and from uh, sometimes the messiness of real life? Or is it possible that Christmas, that, that the real meaning of Christmas actually offers us hope, that there is a peace and there is a calm that we can experience because of Christmas, even in the midst of the chaos? And that's what we want to kind of investigate in this series. We want to talk about how the real meaning of Christmas, how the true message of Christmas can bring peace to us, how it can bring real calm, even in the midst of the most chaotic circumstances that we might face during this time of year. So we'll kind of investigate together. As we investigate this, I think it might be important for us just to first kind of give a good definition and clarify a little bit of what we really mean by calm. What do we mean by calm and what do we mean by peace when we say that there's peace and calm available to us because of Christmas? And, uh, and I think that this can be an area that is oftentimes misunderstood. So let me explain it this way. Uh, there is an old story that's told, uh, you may have heard it before, about an art professor at a university. And he decided that one year he was going to uh, kind of do a competition with his students. So he went to his students and he said, I, I want to commission you on a competition. He said, here's the competition. I want, I want you to, to commission you to paint a portrait uh, that best depicts peace and calm. And so he offered an award to the person who did the best job and he commissioned them. And so many students uh, went and did this and they provided entries into the competition. And so as this professor was going through the different entries from the art students, it was a lot of what you would expect. And a lot of the paintings that were done uh, were of very kind of serene, peaceful landscapes. So for example, one person, they painted a, a, like a nice kind of serene lake, very still, very calm. Uh, it was right during sunset, so that the sky was all lit up and beautiful, and there was a dock that went out onto this beautiful little lake, and the art professor looked at it and said, yeah, that's a, that's a really good depiction. They did a really good job of painting uh, what calm and peace looks like. 
went on, looked at other entries, and a lot of it was the same. One person painted kind of a seascape, and so there, there they had the beach, and they had these gently crashing waves, and the sky was perfectly blue, and it was awesome. And the art professor looked at that and said, yeah, this is, this is also a really wonderful depiction of what calm and peace looks like. He kept kind of going through, and he saw that one person kind of painted a sleeping baby, and, and they, 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 they did a really good job of capturing a kind of that calm that I think all of us maybe have experienced when, when if, you have a, a, if you have children of watching your child sleep, and he kind of captured that in the painting. And so a lot of this kind of was the case as he was going through the different entries. And then, then as he was going through these different paintings, he came across one that looked like it didn't belong. And there was this one painting that just was, I mean, absolutely just, just, just didn't fit. Chaotic. It was, a, it, was a, it was a painting of just this raging storm. And so there was the darkened clouds and torrential downpour, and there was lightning all over the place. And in the middle of this painting, there's just this furious waterfall, this ferocious waterfall in the middle. And the art teacher looked at it and just thought to himself, this doesn't belong. Until he noticed that, that right next to the waterfall, that there was put inside of that a little cleft in the rock. And in the cleft in the rock, there was perched a little bird. And this little bird was just singing like it didn't have a care in the world in the midst of this chaotic landscape. And the art professor knew in that moment when he saw that picture that that student captured something about the true essence of peace and calm that the other paintings didn't. Now, the reason I tell you that is because I believe what, what, that, what that story captures is actually what the Bible teaches about peace and calm. And I, I put it this way in my notes. If, you want, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. I wrote this down, that true calm does not come from outward conditions, but it actually stems from an inward confidence. You see, this is what the Bible is going to teach us about real peace and about real calm. That true peace and true calm does not come from a set of outward circumstances, not biblically speaking. It always comes from an inward state of being, from an inward confidence. In fact, when you read in the Bible about peace and calm, it almost never talks about the circumstances. In fact, oftentimes the circumstances that biblical characters found peace in were some of the most chaotic that were imaginable. And so peace and calm, according to the Bible, is always something that comes from an inner state of confidence that regardless of what my circumstances might look like and the landscape of my circumstances might look like, that I can have calm in the midst. That could be like that little bird. That in, even in the midst of the most raging storm, I can have peace and calm inside of me because of an inner confidence that I have. I think this is really important because I think for many of us, when I, if I was to ask you, what would calm look like for you during the Christmas season? I think we would probably depict that uh, with, with, a, with an outward circumstance, with a situation. And so we'd say, oh, yeah, man, that, uh, uh, calm for me would look like a, a family that functions the right way, you know? Everyone gets along. No one is, you know, no one, there's no bad blood. Everyone's, that, that's what calm looks like for me this year. We'd say, man, calm looks like the kids, everyone gets what they want. We wake up, we go under the tree, and everything's all happy, and the kids open their gifts, and they're like, oh, mother and father, these are the most wonderful gifts ever. We, we love you so much. You got, why don't we give them to the poor, right? And we have this, this picture in our mind of what we think calm would look like, right? And, and there's these circumstances. For some of us, we think that calm for us might look like uh, financial security. For some of us, we think that calm might look like a clean bill of health. If these circumstances happened, then I would have peace and then I would have calm. But the Bible says it's actually very different than that. That, that true peace and true calm actually, calmness actually stems from an inward confidence. Something that comes from the inside. So the question then is this. How does Christmas provide an inward confidence for us? How does the true message and the true meaning of Christmas bring us calmness and peace? A confidence that can bring calmness and peace even in the midst of the most chaotic, dysfunctional, 
and crazy circumstances. Here's why I think this is so important, and here, here's why, why I think that this whole series is so significant. Because I'm convinced that, that, the, that if the understanding and internalizing the true message and the true meaning of Christmas, that if we do that, that it has the power to bring us an inner confidence that can bring us calm and peace, even in the midst of the most chaotic circumstances. Uh, that if we can truly internalize the, the real meaning and the real message of Christmas, that it has the power to bring us calm, regardless of what your family dynamics might be, uh, regardless of what your relational status might be, regardless of what your financial situation and what your occupational situation might look like right now, that regardless of those circumstances, that there is real peace and there is real calm that is available to you. And it's found in the true meaning of Christmas. Now, what am I talking about? Okay, well, let me show you. Okay, so if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them with me real quick. And together, we're going to start by looking at Matthew chapter 1. And so get your Bibles if you have them. And go ahead and flip with me to Matthew chapter 1. All right? And, uh, of course, if you didn't bring a Bible with you here tonight, that's not a problem. There should be some Bibles in the chairs for you there. And you're going to find Matthew chapter 1 on page 675 in those black Bibles. Okay? So Matthew is, uh, is the first book in the New Testament. Um, some of you might know that the Bible is actually split into two parts. There's the Old Testament, and then there's the New Testament. The New Testament's really about Jesus. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to see the, the Christmas story according to Matthew. So we're going to look today at the beginning of the Christmas story. All right, so go ahead and flip there if you will, and you can check that out. Also, let me just say as you're flipping there that if you do not have a Bible, like if you don't have one, uh, we really want you to have a Bible. And so you can take one of ours, make that a gift from us to you. Merry Christmas. You can have one of our Bibles. If you don't like these black Bibles and you want a nicer one, you can go check the lost and found. Take one of those if you want it. And that's fine by me. I'm kind of joking and I'm kind of not. <laughs> so you can do that. All right, so Matthew chapter 1 is what we're going to look at. So hopefully you're there. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read verses 1 to 17. That's the, that's the, the chunk of scripture we're going to look at today. Then we'll circle back around and we'll make some observations, all right? Okay, so here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the son of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abimadab. Abimadab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the same time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abahud, Abahud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azer, Azer the father of Zodak, Zodak the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. All right. Yes. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. 
wow, so we did it. And about this point, some of you are like, I do not envy you for having to read that or getting to read that portion of scripture right now, right? And some of you are like, I can't believe you can pronounce all those names. Well, here's the trick, I can't. See, I've learned in life that if you say anything with confidence that you can convince people you know what you're talking about. And so it's a lot of different names in there, right? And some of you are like, hold it for a minute. Is this really the passage we're looking at today? Yeah, this is really the passage that we're looking at today. And some of you are like, wait a minute. So we're talking about having peace and, and, and overcoming anxiety in the midst of the Christmas season? Yep, that's what we're doing. This is the passage we're looking at? Yep, this is the passage. You're like, I don't, this makes no sense to me at all. And I understand that because I, I know that at first glance, a, a passage like this, a genealogy, doesn't tend to be the first thing that we think about when we think about peace and comfort, right? Like, I, I don't think I've met one person who said to me, you know, whenever I feel anxious in life, whenever I feel like I'm going through turbulent times, I just open my Bible and I flip to Matthew 1 and the genealogy and I just read it. It just gives peace to my soul. You know, I just look and I see, man, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. And I'm like, yes! Like, I don't know anyone who's doing that, right? Let's just be honest about a passage like this. Let's just be completely real with each other, all right? How many of us would say that when we approach a passage like this in Scripture, we either skim it or we skip it? Show of hands. How many of us do that? Right, almost all of us. And if you didn't raise your hand, you're lying to me right now because we, we do that, right? We just skip it. In fact, I think the only time we ever read a, real, a passage like this for real is when we're looking for baby names, that's about it. We're like, I don't know, you know, which, by the way, I still have yet to hold a little shield teal. I would like to do that one, the shield teal. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. What a great name. And, and so we, we read a passage like this, and we think to ourselves, man, this is crazy. We, we sing all these Christmas songs about the wise men, and we sing these Christmas songs about, you know, about the shepherds and about, about Mary and Joseph and the manger, but I still have yet to hear a Christmas song about the genealogy. It's just not out there, Right? And so I guess the question is, here's Matthew, and he's beginning his account of Jesus, the Messiah. Why in the world does he begin with a snoozer? And why does he start with this genealogy? And, and what is the significance and the importance of this passage that we oftentimes skip? Now, here's what I want us to notice today. I believe that this genealogy, that in this genealogy, Matthew is actually making an unbelievably significant point about Jesus. And this is the first book of the New Testament. And, and Matthew is going to start by, by giving us this lineage, giving this genealogy about Jesus Christ. See, I would actually go as far to say this. I would say that within this genealogy, you actually have within this everything that you need to know about Christmas. That all of the basic realities that you need to understand about Christmas are actually located in this genealogy. I would actually even take it a step further. And I would say everything you know, need to know about Christianity the basic teaching about Christianity can be summarized in this genealogy. And so, and so here's, here's what I, what I want to do in this series as we kind of go through this together. I want to look together at three, three truths that, that we can extract from this very simple genealogy uh, that I believe can bring calm, that can give us the inner confidence that will bring calm and peace even in the midst of the most chaotic season. All right, that's what I want to do, that regardless of what you're facing in your life right now, whatever crazy circumstances, whatever chaotic scenarios, I want to show you three truths that are located in this genealogy that I believe can bring you calm, and I believe can bring you peace in an amazing and unprecedented way. And so my hope is, as we go through this series, that this is what I want to do, is each week I want to look at a different truth. So this week we're going to look at one and then the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the other two. We'll look at three total. And then I'm really excited on Christmas Eve. That'll be our fourth week together. On Christmas Eve, I'm really excited because we're, on that day, what we're going to do is we're actually going to try our very best to, to, in a clear and creative way, 
uh, present the real meaning of Christmas. And so I would just really encourage you that if you have friends or coworkers or neighbors or whatever, it might be family members who are not connected to a church at all, we would love for you to invite them. I think we actually have some cards out in the cafe. You can take those and invite them out to Christmas Eve. Because like I said, we're going to do the very best to our ability to try to present the true meaning of Christmas in the clearest and most, um, and most creative way that we know how. And so we're really excited about that and would want to uh, invite you out to, to be part of that. But th- this week, like I said, we're going to look at the first of the three truths that we're going to look at uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks. And, he- and here it is. I'll give it to you right off the top, and then we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking it and breaking it down. Okay, so here it is. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Truth number one, God always comes through on his promises, but often not in the time and not in the way that we expect So this genealogy is going to teach us this very simple but very profound truth. And I want to unpack this. God always comes through on his promises. He always keeps his promises. How often does God come through on his promises? Help me. Tell me. Always. He always comes through on his promises. But often, often, not in the time and not in the way that we think. Not in the time and not in the way that we expect. And this genealogy is going to show us this, I think, in a really interesting way. Let's unpack this a little bit. Let me me show you. Let's just first, I want you to notice how this genealogy starts and how it ends. So I want you to look at the first verse, verse 1. And then I also want you to look at the last verse, verse 17. And look at how Matthew bookends this genealogy. So just check this out. Verse 1 says this. And Matthew says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so that's how he begins it in verse 1. I want you to notice how he ends it in verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And now here's what I want you to notice. Here, Matthew is giving this genealogy, and he begins it and he ends it by highlighting two very significant names. Right, I want you to notice this. So check it out. In the beginning, he says this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. So he highlights those two names, and he ends it in the same way. He says there was 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and then 14 from the exile to Jesus. And so, and so Matthew goes out of his way. Now, this is, this is a question. Why would Matthew, in a list of 42 names that he gives in this genealogy, why would he begin and end by highlighting only two names, Abraham and, and, and David? Why would he do that? Well, well, some of you might know this, that Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, was actually a man who was writing to a Jewish audience. So the book of Matthew is addressed to a primarily Jewish audience. And because of that, that meant that the, the readers of the book of Matthew would have been very, very, very familiar with the Old Testament. Now, the reason that's important is because if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the name Abraham and the name David are both incredibly significant characters. And the reason they're such significant characters is because these are the two guys in the Old Testament that God made a covenant with. Now, now covenant, if you're not familiar with that term, it's a really fancy, churchy word that just means promise. That's all it means. And so Abraham and David were two men that God made a promise to. Uh, God made a promise to Abraham back in the book of Genesis, all the way back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 22. And God said to him, out of you, Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make several descendants. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And from your descendants, I'm going to bless the entire world. 
This was the covenant. They call, the scholars call this the Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant. It's a promise that God made with Abraham. Now, David, on the other hand, David came hundreds of years after Abraham, and he was a person that God also made a covenant with. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said to David, he said, David, from your offspring, there's going to be a descendant that's going to come from you, and he is going to sit on the throne forever. I'm going to establish his kingdom, and his kingdom is going to be an eternal kingdom, and he will reign forever. That was a promise that God made to King David in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so the question is, why in the world would it be that Matthew would begin and would end by telling us that this genealogy, that this Jesus was a descendant of Abraham and was a descendant of David? Well, the reason, quite simply, is this. Matthew is trying to make the point that God, in Jesus Christ, is fulfilling the promises that he made all the way back from the beginning of the Bible to Abraham. In fact, do you guys know that the names that are mentioned here, these 42 names that are listed in this simple genealogy, cover the entire Old Testament? And Matthew is trying to make a point, and the point he's making is this. God delivers on what he promised. That Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one who would come that would sit on the throne of David, the one that would come that God would bless the whole world through uh, as Abraham's descendant. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, that's basic. That's basic. But now I want you to, to notice the second part of this statement, of this truth. So the first part of the statement, again, let's review it. God always comes through on his promises. Okay, so Matthew's making that point. But here's the second part, and I think this is the part that's really important for us to get a hold of today, is that, that God oftentimes does this, uh, oftentimes does not do this in the time or the way that we expect. Right? God will always come through on his promises. He will always follow through. He will always fulfill his promises. But seldom will he ever do that on our timeline, or in the way that we would expect. And my guess is if, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room tonight, and I know not everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus, but my guess is you've probably found this to be true if you are a follower of Christ. That, yeah, man, God is faithful to deliver on his promises. God is so faithful to do that. But, man, he hardly ever, in fact, I might even venture to say he never works on the timetable that I, think he's, that I expect him to work in. He never works in the ways that I anticipate that he is going to work in. He is always faithful to fulfill his promises, but hardly ever does that happen in the time and the way that I would expect. In fact, I might even take this statement a step further, and I might actually say this, that oftentimes when God delivers on his promises, he does it in unprecedented and oftentimes un unpredictable, seemingly improbable, sometimes seemingly impossible ways. But that's the way that God oftentimes does things. Let, let me show you something real quick I thought was so fascinating about this genealogy, all right? And you're going to have to track with me here a little bit. It's going to take a little bit of mental work. So I need you to put on your thinking cap for a second to kind of track with me on this. But I want you to notice something I thought was so fascinating when I was studying this passage. If you glance down with me real quick, down at verse 11 and 12, I want you to notice one name that is listed here that, that I think is, is, there's so much behind it. And so check this out. It says, Josiah was the father of Here's a name I want you to look at, Jeconiah, a guy named Jeconiah. It says, in his brothers at the time of the exile of Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Okay. So Jeconiah, that name is really important. And let, me, let me kind of explain why. I'll actually try to, to, to explain this. I'll try to visualize it for you because I think that can be a little bit more helpful. All right. So, so in Matthew, you have Matthew's genealogy here. Okay. Now here's how Matthew explains the genealogy of Jesus. He starts with Abraham. He says, so God makes a promise to Abraham 
The promise that he made to Abraham was that Abraham, from you, you're gonna, you're gonna, there's going to be descendants, there's going to be a nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendant. That's what's going to happen. And so Abraham has several descendants, and, and one of the descendants, the Bible tells us, is King David. So David comes next. God comes to David. God makes a covenant. He makes a promise to David. He says, David, from you, an offspring is going to come. And he's going to sit on the throne. There's going to be a Messiah. And he's going to establish a kingdom that's going to endure forever. David, that's going to come from you. And so David's like, that's great. And so then David has several descendants, right? And the Bible says that David, that one of his sons, David had several sons, some of you might know, was a guy named Solomon. Now Solomon, now now again, David had many sons. Solomon was the only guy, his only son, who was the successor of him on the throne. He was the only one who was the king after David. And so Solomon both had the blood right to to be king because God said, from you, there's going to be a descendant from your offspring that's going to sit on the throne. But he also had the legal right. And here's what I mean. Not all of David's sons became king. Only Solomon had the legal right to the throne. He was the only one who had the legal right. Now, now, watch this. Now, the Bible says that Solomon had several, uh, had several descendants, and then one of those descendants was this dude, Jeconiah, all right? Now, here's why that's significant. In Jeremiah chapter 22, Jeconiah was king, and the Bible says that because of the wickedness of Jeconiah and because of the wickedness of Israel, that God called a curse on Jeconiah. Here's the curse. I'll read it to you. This is in Jeremiah 22. He said, none of your offspring will prosper None will sit on the throne of David, and none of your ancestors will rule anymore. This was a curse that God made to Jeconiah. He said, no one that comes from from your blood is going to sit on that throne. It's a curse that God made to him. Then the Bible tells us, though, in this genealogy, Jeconiah had several descendants, and eventually one of his descendants was Joseph. And Joseph, as we know, was the adopted father of Jesus. Now, now here's, here's where this gets a little bit tricky. So many commentators and scholars looked at this genealogy and they said, you see, it all falls apart. There's no way Jesus could be the Messiah because of the curse of Jeconiah. Because there was a, God made a promise to Jeconiah that none of his descendants, no one from his blood, would ever go to the throne. That's what, that's what the Bible says. So therefore, that this genealogy is unreliable, the Bible's full of holes, it contradicts itself, and they kind of dismissed it. However... What some of you might know is that in the New Testament, there's actually two genealogies that are given about Jesus. The second one is in the Gospel of Luke. And if you've ever read the Gospel of Luke's genealogy, one of the things you'll notice is that it's similar in the beginning to Matthew's. But about halfway through, it it starts listing a bunch of names that Matthew's genealogy doesn't list. Now, again, liberal scholars have taken that, and what they've said is, you see, the Bible contradicts itself. These two genealogies don't line up. Therefore, the Bible is unreliable. However, most commentators now believe that what we see in the Gospel of Luke is we actually see uh, the, the genealogy and the bloodline, not of Joseph, but of Mary. And I want you to, to check this out, because here's, here's what we see in Luke's uh, genealogy. Luke says, yeah, Abraham. He says, yep, that's true. And then he says, down to David. He says, yep, that's true. And this is where it converges. Suddenly, or this is where it separates. Suddenly, you see that he says that David had another son. David had many sons, and one of the sons was Nathan. And Nathan had several descendants, and from Nathan's descendants came Mary. And Mary, as all of us know, was the mother of Jesus. Now, now here's, so I want you to track with me here, all right? What, what this means is that God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put a king on the throne that's going to come from your blood, 
He has to have the legal right. He has to have the blood right to the throne. The legal right went through Solomon, but the blood right stopped with Jeconiah. So the legal right went on to Joseph. Joseph adopted Jesus. Therefore, Jesus got the royal line to the throne. But over here, David had another son, Nathan, and through his genealogy and his lineage, eventually Mary came. And, and this is the craziest part of it all, I think. In, in, in my opinion, I think it's one of the craziest parts. Many of you know Jesus had none of Joseph's blood. Why? Because Jesus was born of a virgin. This is why it was so important that he was born of a virgin. Because he had Mary's blood, which was the blood of David, which was not cursed, but he also had the legal right to the throne. So what this means is that Jesus Christ both had the legal right and he had the blood right to the throne. Jesus was the one who was the Messiah and that God brought all of these things together to bring about his promises, the promised Messiah that he gave. Now, why do I show you all of this? The reason I show you all of this is because I think what you see in a genealogy like this is you see the brilliance of God. Now, who but God, who but God can work things together in such a way to bring about his purposes and his promises like this? Who but God can arrange things in a manner through time and through generations in such a way to bring about his promise? Again, you guys, what I think this, this really shows us is this just profound reality that God follows through on his promises, always follows through on his promises, but oftentimes it does not happen in the way, and oftentimes it does not happen in the time that we expect for that to work. Listen, here's the thing. I I show you all of this and I tell you all of this not because I'm trying to show you some abstract theological truth. The reason I tell you this is because of this. If if you fail to get a hold of this reality, if if you don't understand this truth, that that what happens is is it, it can cause you, if you don't understand this about God, that God always comes through on his promises, but he oftentimes doesn't work in the time and the way that we think. If you don't get a hold of this truth about God, it will set you up for a life of anxiety. It will set you up for a life of confusion and frustration with God. It will set you up with, a, with misunderstanding about who he is and how he works. And oftentimes what will happen is you'll find yourself in a position where you're tempted to abandon God, to clamor for control, to take situations into your own hands and to be the master of your own destiny because you're not sure that God is going to come through for you. But if you, can, if you can get a hold of this simple truth and you can stamp this into your heart, it actually has the ability to bring you incredible confidence even in the midst of the craziest chaos that you've seen in your life. It has the ability to anchor you to calmness and to peace. If you can understand this truth, this one simple truth, that God always comes through on his promises, always, he might not do it in the way that you think, and he might not do it in the time that you think. And if you, can, if you can get that in your heart, it can bring you peace, and it can bring you calm, even in the most chaotic circumstances that you might be facing in your life. And for those of us who follow Christ, like I said, I know not everyone does, God has promised certain things to you and I. And, 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 and God, has pro- God has promised to us provision. God, God says, to us, Jesus says to us in the book of Matthew, he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about provision. I'm going to take care of all of that. And so you can seek first the kingdom and my righteousness, and I'll provide for you, right? That's a promise that God has made to those of us who follow him. That's a promise he made. He will certainly fulfill that. But listen, sometimes he will not do that in the way you think. Oftentimes he will not do that in the timeline that you think. God oftentimes does not work in the way that we expect. In fact, this is so common, I think you can almost expect it 
to be the case. This truth that we're looking at right now is not just true in this genealogy. It is true all throughout the Bible. In fact, I might even say this, that it's almost God's MO. This is almost God's, mo uh, God's mode of operation, that, that God will um, fulfill his promises in unexpected ways is almost something that you can expect. Well, let me just give you a couple examples of that. We talked about Abraham in a moment ago. If you don't know Abraham's story, here's Abraham's story in a nutshell. Abraham, the Bible says, God came to him when he was about 75 years old, made a promise to him. He said, Abraham, out of you, you're going to have descent. I'm going to give you more descendants than there are stars in the sky. It's a promise that God made to Abraham. And Abraham said, that's awesome. That's wonderful, God, but there's a problem. My wife and I can't have children. See, he and his wife, they, they struggled with infertility. I almost said infidelity. That's not what they struggled with. Actually, later on, they did struggle with infidelity. But uh, yeah, infertility, they struggled with infertility. And so, so, so Abraham said, God, I, you, know, you're, you promised me all these children, but we struggle with infertility. And God said, not a problem. I'll take care of that. I promise you that you're going to have more descendants than you can count. Abraham said, awesome. And he expected that nine months later that he and his wife would start having babies. But is that how things panned out? No. God did not work in the time and the way that Abraham and Sarah expected. 25 years later, Abraham's almost 100 years old. And she, uh, Sarah's in her 90s, and they give birth to their son, Isaac, right? Talk about not working in the ways or in the timeline that you would imagine, right? Th there's a miracle. And this, of course, all before Viagra was even on the market. I mean, talk about a miracle. God performed this thing. God made a promise to them. And he delivered on the promise to them, but he didn't do it in the way and he didn't do it in the time that they expected. This was true with Abraham. This is true with Israel. Some of you might know God made a promise to Israel. He said, listen, I'll deliver you out of Egyptian captivity in the book of Exodus. I will deliver you into the promised land. And they, they thought to themselves, awesome. That means we'll be in the promised land tomorrow. Is that how it worked? No. 40 years later, God, brought, God took them through a season of testing and building their faith, and eventually delivered that he, he fulfilled his promise, but not in the time and not in the way that he thought. He did this with Abraham. He did this with the Israelites. He's done this all throughout the Bible. He's done it with Jesus. He's done it with the resurrection. God is faithful to keep his promises, just not in the time and not in the way that we oftentimes expect. And this is true, by the way, for you and I too. In our lives as well, God seldom, if ever, works in the time and the ways that we expect. And if you can internalize this, like I said, it has the ability to bring you peace, to bring you calm, even in the midst of chaos. I was thinking about this this past week, and um, this might sound kind of silly to you, but the illustration that came, the best illustration that came to my mind is the show 24. You guys remember 24? That show was out with Jack Bauer. And uh, my wife and I, for whatever reason, I don't, whenever it comes to pop culture stuff, we've always been a little bit behind the ball on those things. And so, so we're a little bit late to the game. Um, and so, so 24, I remember when it came out, it was a big hit. People were raving about it. It got awesome reviews. And I remember all that, and, but, but I didn't watch it. And then I remember one day, my wife and I were like, we should watch 24. Everyone says it's so awesome. We should watch it. And so went to the library and we rented every season of 24. And we're like, we're going to go home and we're going to overtime watch these. And I remember we sat down and we watched season one. And I think we binge watched that sucker. I think we watched the, like we watched the first season of 24 in a 24-hour period of time, right? We just watched the whole thing. And I remember I was like, I was hooked. It's like, this show is awesome. Kiefer Sutherland is awesome. Jack Bauer is amazing, right? This show is incredible. So we were totally hooked. And I, and I think, and, and you have to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but if I remember right, I think it was somewhere in season three. Maybe it was season two or season three. Towards the end of the season, Jack Bauer actually, like, dies, 
Now, again, I'm not sure if that was what really happened or if, like, it might have been that he got, maybe he got, like, radiation poisoning, and it was, like, certain death for Jack Bauer. And I remember watching this, and I was like, oh, my gosh, Jack Bauer is going to die. This is crazy. You know, it's season three, and Jack Bauer is going to die. But I remember thinking to myself, I was like, well, wait a minute, though. And I looked over, and right next to me here, I have season four. And guess whose picture is on the front of the box? It's Kiefer Sutherland, right? I'm like, that's Jack Bauer. I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense. He's going to die, but he's in season four. And I was like, and I just remember in that moment, I was like, well, it's going to be fine. I know everything's going to be fine because I got a promise over here. I have a promise sitting right here in season four, and it's got Kiefer Sutherland's face on it. There's death cannot stop Jack Bauer, right? You're not going to stop the guy. And I, I just tell you that I remember thinking to myself, that because I had this promise, because I knew that this was the reality, I was able to watch that show with, I guarantee, more calm and more peace than a person who probably originally watched that show when it first aired. Because the people who originally watched that show when it first aired, they had no idea there was a season four. So they're probably like, oh man, this is crazy. Jack is going to die at the edge of their seat. But you see me, I was like, nah, Jack's going to be fine. And so I was able to sit back with a tall drink in my hand, a nice snack, right? I was able to watch this, and I was like, oh, I don't know how he's going to get out of this one. I don't know how. I don't know why. I don't know when. I guess I kind of know when. It's going to be within the next 24 hours, right? I don't know when, but I do know this much. I know there's a season four, and I know it's got Jack's face all over it. So this is going to be great. Can't wait to see how he gets out of this one, right? And, and listen, if you can get a hold of that, just that's, that's kind of a silly illustration, but if you can get a hold of that, I think you can start to understand the power of a promise. That, that when you can, can understand, man, that God keeps his promises. Now, is it going to happen in the way that you think? Yeah, probably, probably not. In fact, I would almost say bank on it not happening the way you think. Is it going to happen in the time that you think? Yeah, probably not. That's probably not the case. But you can bank on this, that God always, always keeps his promises. The message of Christmas tells us that. Christmas te- the true message of Christmas teaches us that God is with us, that God will move heaven and earth to accomplish his purposes in our lives, to accomplish the promises that he has set forth. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we can bank on that confidence. We can have it. And what that does is it brings us calm and it brings us peace, even in the midst of the most chaotic circumstances. For some of you right now, the circumstances of your life might make no sense to you. And you're looking at your circumstance and you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't know why this is happening to me. The timing is all wrong. The situation is it's not working in the way that I thought it was. Some of you, you're looking at your family right now. You're like, why was I born into this family? This is crazy. What is wrong with my stepmom, right? Christmas is going to be ruined. And you're, 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 for some of you, you're like, I don't, I don't, it's, this isn't happening the way I thought. And, and, your, and your circumstances in your life confuse you. For some of you, right now, you're looking at your set of circumstances and maybe you're facing a loss right now and you, you cannot make any sense of it. Why is this happening? Why did this person have to leave? Why is this person gone? Why am I facing this hard thing? And listen, it makes no sense to you. If nothing is happening in the way, it's not happening in the time that you think. Some of you right now in your job, in your occupation, things that you're like, I didn't expect to be here in my job at this age. So you're saying, I thought by this, right now you don't have a job. You, man, this doesn't make any sense to me. God, I thought you said you were going to take care. I thought you said you're going to provide for me and things aren't happening the way and the time that I think they should. But listen, here's what we know for sure. God keeps his promises. He always does. But oftentimes not in the time, not in the way that we think. Let's pray together. Well, God, I just want to say thank you so much that you are a God who does keep your promises. That we, serve a, we serve a king who will move heaven and earth 
who will work through generations in unexpected ways and unexpected times to bring forth your Messiah. God, you fulfill your promises, and I know we can bank on that here tonight, God, and I know for some of us right now, we're facing times in our life that are bringing a lot of anxiety and a lot of uncertainty, and God, there's a, a lot of scenarios that are represented in this room. Father, it's easy for us to come to church sometimes, and it's easy for us to uh, just kind of fake it for a little while, like everything's going all right. But Lord, to know that, uh, that there, there's, there's, there's all types of things that are happening, God, and, and, and here, here's the truth. The truth is that you are a God that keeps your promises, and when we put our hope in you and we put our faith in you, God, that we can trust you, we can rely on you. And even though you're not going to work things out in the way and in the time that we think, not on our timeline, not to match our expectations, God, even though we know that, one thing that we do know for certain, God, is that you will fulfill your promises. You always have and you always will. And so for those of us who put our hope and our faith and our trust in you, God, I pray that we would find you worthy and faithful God, I pray that you would help us just to have calm in the midst of any chaos that we're facing during this holiday season. That that would, be, that, that would come from, it would stem forth an inner confidence, and the inner confidence that we can have, God, is that you do keep your promises. You do. And the story of Christmas teaches us that, and the story of Christmas invites us in. It invites us to say, man, we, don't, we can relinquish control. We can relinquish the illusion that we have control over anything, because we don't. God, we can stop playing God and we can rest. We can rest. We don't need to feel like we need to manipulate our circumstances or that we need to, to somehow control the outcome. But God, we can rest in understanding and knowing, that God, that you're sufficient and that your promises are enough and that you will accomplish those things in your time and in your ways. And so we can put our hope and our trust in you. So Father, I pray as we, uh, as we end this service that uh, God, you would just help us to take these things to heart. I pray that we'd be blessed uh, for, for having seen them and studied them. I pray, God, that we would not just be hearers of your word, that we'd be doers of it as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name.